Hello and welcome to Account Instruction Help and How To. In this lecture, we're going to be talking about the Keynesian model, also known as the short-term model or demand-side model. At the end of this, we will be able to describe the aggregate supply and demand curve model, explain what the aggregate demand curve is and what factors will shift the aggregate demand curve. We're going to describe the short-run and long-run aggregate supply curves and what factors will shift the short-run and long-run aggregate supply curves, show the effects of the shifts on aggregate demand and aggregate supply curves, and list the limitations of the macroeconomic model. When we think about the economic model in terms of the Keynesian model, this happened in the 1930s, and it's really when we took a look intensely at the macroeconomic model in terms of a short-run perspective. Why? Because there was a depression in the 1930s. The classical model before that time often focused on the fact that the invisible hand is the most effective and efficient way to run the economy, and therefore we should focus on the long-run, long-run growth, long-run supply-side growth. Of course, in the 1930s, there was this big downturn, and there's a lot of question in terms of what caused the downturn, what caused it, what prolonged it. Is it because of policy that prolonged it, or was it because of policy that brought us out of the Depression? That is still a debated topic and a highly researched topic, but because there's this downward process, this big downturn, there's a question as to whether the government should step in at that point and see if we can shore up the downturn. The idea goes something like this, if we think about the growth being somewhere around 2%, say the U.S. economy is growing at 2%, we're imagining that graph increasing at 2% in the long run. If we zoom in on that graph, we're going to see pits and valleys within that graph. And if we see uh, major pits, then the question is, can we basically shore those up with government policy? Is there short-run policy that we can do to smooth out that long-run growth pattern? And the idea, of course, of the Keynesian model is that is that there is it's the idea of the Keynesian model is that uh, there can be short-run deviations from potential output meaning the market's not efficient at some points in time and if we can identify those points in times when it is not efficient then possibly we can use uh, government policy in order to uh, drive it back to that efficient point in a quicker time frame than waiting for the um, the long-run effect the invisible hand to work that process out so remember what we're talking about when we talk about potential output. It's kind of like the production possibility curve or the production possibility frontier where you'll remember that we had the two products in the economy, only two goods and services within the economy, and we decided that uh, there was a possibility frontier then based on that, and that would be the efficient level. So if we were producing on the curve, we were using all of our resources in that economy in order to produce those goods and resources. And we can apply that model towards everything, goods and services as a whole, the, the idea of being efficient. The, the same idea is gonna be for potential output. If we're on that curve, that means we're using all of our goods and resources to have the highest output as of that point in time. Remember the model is as of a point in time, things could change in the future, we could get more people and, and we can have more technology. But as of that point in time, the, the idea is that we're at that level and if we're inside the curve, we're not efficient. If we're outside the curve, that's impossible until we, something happens to push out the curve. Same idea for the potential output, except that for macroeconomics, we're not talking about the curve necessarily because we're not comparing uh, the, the types of products that could be produced. And we're not talking about opportunity costs. We're just talking about potential output on the aggregate, everything as a whole. So the concept of being on that curve, being efficient is the same but we don't have the idea of opportunity cost. That's not what we're talking about. We're just talking about 
everything as a whole. The long-run classical perspective is that the markets are the best thing to drive us to that to the producing at a whole being the most efficient long-term economics. The supply and demand, the invisible hand, is what's going to lead us to be the most efficient. The short-term Keynesian perspective is that there are going to be times where there's substantial deviations from that point and that government policy can bring us back to that point in a faster, more efficient way. Part of the Keynesian model uh, starts like this. We have this type of problem that we can see in terms of a cyclical downturn. So a cyclical downturn might start off if we have markets in a recession for whatever reason. Let's say a market starts out as a recession. What could happen as a result of that is that firms could respond by decreasing output and layoff workers. So the firms are going to say, okay, there's a recession. We have to respond and decrease our output and lay, out, uh, lay off workers in order to maintain profit margins. Then this, lower, this lowers the people's income, of course, because now workers have no, much less wages. The workers are the people that buy stuff, so they have less income in order to buy stuff. And of course, that lower, the lower income leads to less consumption because the workers are buying less stuff, and this causes a decrease in production. So you can see how this feeds on itself. You can see how we have this downward spiral. This is the problem. This is what we're kind of fearing in terms of a short-run problem spiraling downward. Now, the long-run perspective is that, well, eventually the cycle ends and the new equilibrium will take time, and it will, but we will eventually get to a new equilibrium. The markets will take care of, it for, of itself and we'll get to a new equilibrium. But the question is, how long will that take? And is there going to be a faster way that we can basically get back to equilibrium? And the short-term model is going to say there's going to be a faster way to, to basically get back to equilibrium using uh, government policy in order to do that. Now note that this cyclical method is not always negative. It's not always a downturn. It could be a upturn cyclical cycle that goes up. But note that what we're really looking for is the long-term growth. And if we have a cyclical cycle that's, that's deviating substantially from that long-term growth pattern, then that could be a problem if it goes either way. And uh, there, there's going to be fiscal and monetary policy to deal with that, whether we're whether it, we're cycling upwards or if it's cycling downwards. The idea being to keep things basically steady. Now, part of the argument is going to go something like this: If we were talking about a single market, if demand falls, firms reduce prices to bring market back to equilibrium. That's what we would expect in a single market. If we're going to have demand's going to fall, then the firms are going to reduce prices back to equilibrium, and everything is good. This isn't always the case, though, for the aggregate demand, for the aggregate economy. And there's a couple reasons, a couple arguments for why this is not the case, why this equilibrium doesn't, isn't a, can't be applied in terms of the macro level as it can generally on the micro level. And that's because the social forces keeps firms from reducing wages. And so social forces such as we could have unions or we just could have uh, employers not wanting to reduce wages. It's, it's difficult to reduce wages. And if wages are going to be a part, a major part of the input prices, that means they're not going to be able to reduce prices because they're not going to be reducing wages. Rather than reduce prices, firms often cut production before they re reduce prices and before re they reduce wages. And the lower prices could lead to that downward spiral we're talking about before. And all this downward spiral, of course, could also lead towards negative expectations. Negative expectations could affect how people act in the economy. And that could have a, a shocking effect, basically lowering this downward cycle. It's also argued that if the firms did reduce prices and wages, this could lead to deflation. So if we did see the firms, all the firms on aggregate, all of them, reduce prices and wages, that could lead to deflation and overall decline in the price level of the economy. 
that usually has its own downsides. Deflation is not something that's going to be desirable for, for the economy. We generally want to have a, a steady increase between like 1% and 3%. It's usually what we're shooting for as inflation and not have deflation. So that could be a problem as well. So those are the two arguments basically for why we should need some kind of uh, intervention in terms of this type of downturn. Another Keynesian insight that led to the idea that we would need some more government intervention within the short run, how the short run is different from the long run, is the idea of the paradox of thrift. Paradox of thrift has to do with saving. So if there's a downturn in the economy, people tend to start to save more. Now, from a long-term perspective, saving is good. We want people to save more. Why? Because when they save, they put money into the bank. The bank then loans that money out. People then get that money and invest it, and they make more capital. And capital is part of aggregate demand, so it's going to increase GDP, increase aggregate demand. So saving is usually thought of as a good thing. But if the, in the short run, the idea is that the short run is going to be different from the long run, then in the short run, the idea is that the saving can lead to decrease in spending, and, this, and that leads to output decreases and employment decreases. So this is going to be causing part of the cause of this kind of downward spiral. Why doesn't the saving get to the capital investments within the short run? Because it, it takes time to get the savings to be transported and converted into capital, which would be good for the long-term economy. So the, the idea is that if there's a short-run shock in terms of savings, then that could lead to this kind of downward spiral problem. And even though saving is basically good in the long run, so that would lead to government's attempts to control aggregate levels of spending, and, they, and that's why we have these government policies that are basically actually promoting spending and, and not promoting savings sometimes because they're trying to stimulate the economy and not have this kind of shock to the economy where people start to save more. And, and, and if it happens all at one time, then it could lead to, the, to a down, downward spiral. Let's take a look at the components of the aggregate supply and aggregate demand model. We'll just list them out and then we'll go into them one by one and then we'll look at the graphs of them. So we're going to have the aggregate demand curve, we're going to have the short-run aggregate supply curve, and a long-run aggregate supply curve. So it's going to look similar to our normal model where we've got a downward-sloping demand curve and an upward-sloping uh, supply curve. However, we're going to have some differences and one Big difference is that the short run and long term, we're going to have two supply curves. We're going to have a short run supply curve and a long run supply curve. And there's also some big differences in terms of what those lines mean, what the downward sloping demand, upward sloping supply curves mean. We'll get more into that as we look at them individually. But just keep in mind that although we're using terminology that's very similar and uh, sometimes the curves will act in a similar way, they're much different in nature. And you want to just keep that in mind. So the aggregate demand curve is the curve that shows how a change in the price level will change aggregate expenditures on all goods and services in the economy. So remember, aggregate, all goods and services in the economy. The short-run aggregate supply curve, short-run aggregate supply, is a curve that specifies how a, sh how a shift in the aggregate demand curve will affect the price level and real output in the short run. And so notice what, what we're doing is here, we're looking at demand and seeing how that will affect supply. So, you know, keep in mind the cause and effect relationship. Demand is affecting the supply. So then we're going to say the long-run long aggregate supply curve is the curve that shows the long-run relationship between output and price levels. Now, a few of the major differences between the micro uh, demand and supply and the macro demand and supply is remember that when we think about the micro model, if we're, if we're thinking about the curve, we got the uh, downward sloping demand, upward sloping supply in terms of a microeconomic model. One of the major reasons we explain the curve is that 
we have the opportunity cost and we have a substitution effect, meaning that the reason we have a downward sloping demand curve, for example, is that if the price goes up, people will demand something else. They'll substitute the product for something else. And remember, we talked about elasticity and that would determine how much, how elastic the demand is, how effective it is to price, how effective the quantity is by a change in price. And that in part is due to the substitution effect. That's not going to be the case for the macroeconomic demand curve. We're typically going to draw it down. It could be thought of to be vertical. We're typically going to draw it as a downward sloping demand curve here, but it's going to be for different reasons. We'll talk about those reasons in a second, but note that they're different <laughs> than substitution and opportunity cost. In theory, it's possible to think of the aggregate demand curve as vertical. And remember, if we think about the price on the vertical axis and the, and the total quantity, uh, total GDP quantity on the x-axis, and we think of a vertical aggregate demand curve, the reasoning for that could be thought of as an example. We could say, well, what if all prices doubled? Then that would also increase basically income. So if prices all doubled and people's income all doubled, then the quantity that people would, uh, the quantity would then remain the same. So you'll note that we'll have a vertical even though the price levels are changing and that would be that would be the aggregate demand so but there's going to be reasons why we're going to have a downward sloping demand we will discuss those shortly but first let's take a look at the aggregate demand curve what it is what is aggregate demand as a whole remember that aggregate demand is the expenditures of all goods and services in the entire economy so we're talking about everything so when we talk about aggregate demand we're saying aggregate demand is basically equal to gross domestic product or gdp aggregate demand is everything what is gross domestic product? How do we usually break that out? Remember that our formula that we usually break that out as consumption plus investment plus government consumption plus exports minus imports. So we can think of aggregate demand. When we say aggregate demand, we can think of it as basically GDP equal to gross domestic product, which is of course equal to our formula in terms of the components of gross domestic product being consumption, investment, government consumption, and uh, net exports, exports minus imports. We will generally represent a downward sloping aggregate demand curve, but it will not be because of the substitution effects. Some effects that could compensate or account for that downward sloping curve would include the interest rate effect, the international effect, money wealth effect, and the multiplier effect will have an impact in how severe or how large those other three impacts could be. So let's take a look at some of those. Starting with the interest rate effect. So remember, we're trying to justify why the demand curve is downward sloping. And we're going to take an example where there's a decrease in price level. And if we have a downward sloping demand curve, we're trying to, we're trying to justify why the interest rate effect would say that a decrease in the price level would lead to an increase in aggregate demand. The interest rate argument would be that a decrease in price level would lead to an increase in the purchasing power that people have on hand. So the money that we have is going to be worth more if there's a decrease in the price level. If that's the case, then people would possibly invest more, take more of the money that they're having, and because they uh, have more purchasing power, they can put more into the banks. The idea there would be that the banks will then loan out the money and when the banks loan out the money to people investing in things like capital, this will drive interest rates down. So banks have more money to loan out, driving interest rates down. This will increase investments in investments like things like equipment. And that's part of aggregate demand. So this will increase investments in, that, in, in our equation. If we think about our gross domestic product equation, we've got our consumption plus investment. Investment being those things like investment in capital assets, 
from people uh, taking out loans and investing. And that's why we would say that this means that an aggregate demand increases when price levels fall. Or when price levels falls, aggregate demand increases due to this interest rate effect. Next example, we'll take the international effect. So same thing, we're gonna say that the price levels fall and we're trying to justify why in terms of the price level falling, would that lead to an increase in aggregate demand because that would justify a downward sloping demand curve. So if we're saying the price levels fall, we're saying that the price of US goods compared to foreign goods goes down and US goods become more competitive in comparison to foreign goods. And this is kind of the argument when we're thinking about uh, aggregate markets as a whole, we're still not talking about the, you know, the whole world and because there's going to be other markets outside of the macroeconomic uh, economy. And so we're having effects by, of course, the, the world market here. So if the price of U.S. Uh, goods compared to the foreign goods goes down and the U.S. goods become more competitive, this causes exports to increase and U.S. imports to decrease. So that's why we're gonna, that's the explanation for the aggregate demand curve increases when price levels fall. And then the next one is the money wealth effect. Now again, remember, we're, we're trying to justify why we have a downward sloping demand curve. We're trying to justify that if price levels fall, why is it that aggregate demand would then increase? The money wealth effect would say, would say that if price levels fall, this causes the current dollars that we are holding to be worth more, meaning we're basically richer if the price levels fall, and that will lead to more invest more consumption and of course consumption is part of the gross domestic product and therefore that would increase aggregate demand and then we have the multiplier effect and the multiplier effect is just the idea that a lot of these will be amplified within the market as these things take place within the market they can be multiplied or amplified due to the multiplier effect when you look at the multiplier effect it's also if often explained in terms of a dollar being consumed if there's another dollar being consumed in the market one person spends more one more dollar Whoever they uh, gave that dollar to would then take that dollar and depending on how much they save and how much they invest if they're, or how much they save and how much they spend, if they spend 80%, then 80% of that dollar we put into the market is now going to somebody else and is being spent in the market and that person will take that 80% of the dollar and if they take it and they invest 20% and they uh, spend another 80% of that, then you can see how this multiplies through the market and this one purchasing power of this $1 is multiplied. We can apply that same kind of principle to these types of effects as well, meaning the effects that we just talked about will then be amplified due to the multiplier effect. You can see how when this is part of the problem in concept, these things lead to a downward sloping demand curve, but in practice it could be a little bit difficult to see what uh, the effects of these are, what the actual numbers are. So we've described why the demand curve is downward sloping. Now let's talk about what things will shift the demand curve. So we're going to talk about shifting demand curves just like we did in microeconomics. We've got the downward sloping demand curve. Now what are the things that will actually shift the entire demand curve? So a shift in the demand curve means that every price level total expenditures have changed. We're going to talk about five components. First one being foreign income. This again being that idea that when we're talking about the entire market, we're not talking about the entire world market. We're talking about, of course, in this case, a U.S. market as compared to other foreign markets. We are in a, in a larger market. And if there's something happens in terms of our trading partners in a recession or something like that, that would mean that they would require less U.S. goods and that would shift the aggregate demand curve. The next being exchange rates. So if the value of the currency goes down, goods become more competitive. So if the value of our currency goes down, our goods become more competitive in comparison to foreign goods. That means foreign demand goes up, domestic demand for foreign goods will then go down, shifting the aggregate demand curve. 
is the distribution of income. As we have more income that is in the form of investment-related income, meaning returns on investments rather than just wages, it's more likely that that income will go to the higher uh, income individuals, those higher income individuals being more likely to save rather than spend a lot of the money. This can uh, decrease expenditures, shifting the aggregate demand to the left expectations if you if people have future expectations whether they be good or bad about the economy they will behave based on those expectations and that's often the kind of variable factor that is in there that could be a shifter of the demand as well and then we have monetary and fiscal policy and this of course is the point of the Keynesian model being that if we can determine where the aggregate demand is in the business cycle then we can use government policy including monetary and fiscal policy in order to shift the aggregate demand curve. So the government spends uh, lots of money and decreases taxes, aggregate demand shifts to the right. And if we can raise taxes and hold off spending, aggregate demand shifts to the left. So you can see that if we're seeing if the market is below where it should be or above where it should be, then we can pick and choose the appropriate monetary and fiscal policy, which would either be to put more money into the market and allow people to have more money and that would be by reducing taxes or, or having some government spending or retracting, which means that we would be taking money out of the market by doing things like increasing taxes and reducing government spending. Uh, that's how we can basically affect the market and drive it back to that equilibrium point by shifting the demand curve. If we want to think about this in a more systematic way, we can think about aggregate demand equaling GDP, and we can see the components of the GDP, GDP being consumption, investment, government spending, and net exports. And if we think about some of these things just in terms of the relationship of that equation, then we can say that uh, if income goes up, we would assume something, if we look at our components here, we would say, well, that's probably going to mean that people are going to consume more and consumption is part of gross domestic product, so increase in consumption would increase GDP, increasing aggregate demand. If we had something like income taxes, so if the government put in income taxes, then we would say, well, hmm, if people are paying more income taxes, they have less money, and that would mean that they're going to, if we say consumption, they're going to say they're going to consume more. Uh, I mean, sorry, they're going to consume less, and that would mean that aggregate demand would go down. So if we just compare the components of our gross domestic uh, equation, gross domestic product equation. If we have government spending, so the government's going to spend more money. Again, we can get on a lot of details in terms of <laughs> what the government's going to spend money on and what about the income taxes going to the government, but you can see these kind of quick uh, analyses of the gross domestic pro product equation to see what's going to happen. If government spending goes up, we're assuming there's going to be more money in the hands of the people then, and therefore that's going to allow people to be able to consume more. So if the consumption goes up due to the government spending, that would increase gross domestic product and it would increase uh, aggregate demand. We will now move to aggregate supply. So aggregate supply, remember there's going to be a short run and a long run aggregate supply. So this is where things are going to get a bit different here. So we're going to say the amount, of, what is aggregate? supply is going to be the amount of goods and services or the real GDP that firms will produce in the economy at different price levels. So again, we're talking about the aggregate, we're talking about the entire uh, economy and what will firms produce at different price levels in the entire economy. We're going to have two of them. Two of them, there's going to be a short run up and that's going to be an upward sloping line. That's going to be our typical looking upward sloping line that we've seen before, but for different reasons. And then we're going to have the long run and the long run is going to be a vertical line 
We'll talk about each uh, at this time. First, we'll talk about the short run aggregate supply curve, and, and it's going to be upward sloping. And again, we got to justify why it is upward sloping. It, it looks the same as the, as the supply curve that we've seen in microeconomics, but it's for different reasons. So we have to define why it's going to be upward sloping. So there's going to be two arguments for this. There's an action market in, in a market where there's going to be a lot of competition. So where firms are price takers within the market. In, in that case, if there's a lot of competition, we would say that it would be logical that when aggregate demand increases, so there's an increase in demand, price levels, meaning all prices as a whole, a composite of all prices, rise to meet the aggregate demand. That's kind of what we would expect. That argument would be what we would expect, and that would be what would happen in a, in a, complete, in a completely like competitive market where there's a lot of different players within the market. So that's not as surprising to us. But... There's a lot of places in the market, a lot of uh, industrialized markets, where uh, many firms have a lot of power, meaning they kind of have, have an oligopoly power, and therefore they have, they're not in a com perfectly competitive market. And if that's the case, they have more control over the price. They're not just price takers. And we call that a posted price market or a quantity-adjusted market when we're thinking about this, uh, this problem here in terms of the aggregate supply curve. And that's going to be markets in which firms respond to changes in demand by changing production instead of changing their price so they may have some restrictions to changing the price that's what we would expect to happen we would expect that if there's a change in aggregate demand there would be a change to price and that would take us back to equilibrium but if we're at a firm that has a lot of market power they have power over the price and it's very possible that they will change quantity for various reasons rather than the price but we do see even in these types of markets that firms tend to uh, increase their markup when demand increases as well. So it does uh, justify that slope. Again, what is the actual slope of the line? A little bit more difficult to tell, but we can justify that it is the upward sloping. What factors shift the short-run aggregate supply curve? And they're going to be the same as the factors that basically shift the aggregate supply that we had seen before. So input prices are going to be things that are going to shift the aggregate supply. So we're talking about the supply of the entire market. If input prices change, such as resources like wages change within the entire market for whatever reason, that's going to shift the aggregate supply. And remember, if it shifts to the left, that at every, every given quantity, the price will be higher. And if the supply curve shifts to the right, that means that at every given quantity along the entire line, the price will be lower than it was previously. So really, we want that shift to the right and when we're talking about the aggregate supply, even though it's lower <laughs> than, the one, than the one before. So if we're looking at an upward sloping supply curve and it shifts to the right, that would mean that the, we would have less prices for the output levels all, all along the supply curve. So that would be due to things like if input prices went down, we would have a shift to the right. Or for example, if we had technology being another thing that if there's an increase in technology shifts the entire aggregate supply to the right, that's something that we would basically like to see because then at every uh, real quantity output, the price would be lower. Uh, things like import prices, again, other markets can affect our, our market because when we're talking about the aggregate, we're, we're talking about the aggregate pretty much per country and there's still a bigger market out there being the world market. And then, the, and then their excise prices and sales taxes are also things can affect, basically affect the input prices and those things, whether they go up or down. 
can also shift the aggregate uh, supply curve. We'll now move to the long run aggregate supply curve. So now we've looked at the short run aggregate supply that's, that's upward sloping as we've seen before, similar to what we've seen in our typical supply curve. Now we've got the long run aggregate supply curve and the long run aggregate supply curve shows the long run relationship between output and prices. And the position of the long run aggregate supply curve depends on the, dep the potential output. Remember that output that we could be at. And in the long run, we're assuming that we're going to be at the potential output, and that's going to be the long run effect, kind of like when we're focusing on the long run effect versus the Keynesian model. We're looking, we're saying in the long run, we will be at that potential output, which is the amount of goods and services any economy can produce uh, when both capital and labor are fully employed. So when we're using all our resources, when we're fully efficient, we're at potential output. That's what we're assuming to be at when we're talking about the long run aggregate supply curve. In the long run, the long run aggregate supply curve will be vertical. And the reason it's going to be vertical is because a change in price will have no effect on the long run aggregate supply curve. For example, if there's a rise in price levels, this means that prices of goods and factors of production will increase. They'll all rise in the same level. So if all prices double, including wages, real income has not changed. So there's going to be, that's why we're just going to have a vertical line when we're talking about the long run aggregate supply because there's no effect on price to the quantity in the long run. Increases in the long run aggregate supply are caused by increases in some of the same things that increase the gross domestic product. So remember when we're talking about the long run aggregate supply curve, if we're trying to shift it to the right, we're talking about the same things that are going to, we're talking about the long run supply, the same thing as kind of like the classical model, the things that we're focusing on in terms of long term growth, supply side growth. So those things include things like capital. We want to, if capital increases, that could shift the long run aggregate supply to the right. Uh, resources can shift out to the right. Growth, compatible institutions. So if we have institutions that are inclined towards growth, that and we've talked about that in the classical model, what types of institutions would be inclined towards growth, that could shift the aggregate supply. Technology and just the norms of society, including entrepreneurial type spirits in terms of people willing to take on risk and start new businesses. Those are all types of things in the long run that could shift the long run aggregate supply to the right. Now that we've defined all of our lines separately, let's put them on one table. Let's put them on one graph and start putting them together. So we're going to put two at a time together here. So let's imagine that we have our aggregate demand downward sloping. We've got price on the vertical axis going from bottom to top price level and on the horizontal from the x-axis from left to right. We've got real output or GDP and we're imagining our aggregate demand. We only have one demand curve. It's downward sloping for different reasons than the other demand curve that we talked to micro. But we have the upward sloping. Let's just talk about the upward sloping aggregate supply curve, not talking about the long run aggregate supply curve, just the short run aggregate supply curve. So it looks like our typical kind of graph that we've seen before, but for different reasons, we've got the downward sloping aggregate demand, upward sloping aggregate supply. Now we're going to say in the short run equilibrium, of course, is where the short run aggregate supply is meets the short run aggregate demand, and that will be our price and our real quantity level. Now we're going to talk about what happens if there's a shift in demand and note that that's how most of these are going to go. We're going to say, hey, there's going to be a shift in demand and then we're going to see what the result of that is generally in terms of supply. So if a shift in aggregate demand curve to the right, this changes the equilibrium. So we can imagine what the aggregate demand meeting in terms of supply upward, demand downward sloping. If we see the demand curve shifting up to the right, what that does is create a new equilibrium point and that equilibrium point will mean a higher price and a higher real GDP output. This model is a result, remember, in the short run, we're talking about the aggregate demand in the short run aggregate supply. 
On the other hand, if we start back over and we start back to our, our beginning point where we have a downward slope in aggregate demand, we got an upward slope in aggregate supply where we meet in the middle at equilibrium. If instead of aggregate demand shifting, we have a change along the demand curve, meaning we're moving up in this case on the demand curve. In order for us to get to a new equilibrium point, what we would have to do then is shift up the aggregate supply curve. So aggregate supply, the short run aggregate supply would then shift up to meet that change along the aggregate demand curve, resulting in a higher price and a less real output in that case. Now let's move and take a look at the long run aggregate supply. So we looked at the short run aggregate supply, short run aggregate supply having that upward sloping curve. Long run aggregate supply is going to be a vertical line. So we're just going to have the vertical line in the long run. So now we're just going to put these two curves on the graph. We're going to have a, a, a short term. I mean, we're going to have the aggregate demand downward sloping, and then we're going to have the long term aggregate supply is a, just a vertical line on the graph. And of course, they will intersect as well. And where they intersect is going to be at real GDP output quantity. And that's going to be where the long run aggregate supply is because it's a vertical line. So quantity is what it is unless there's a shift in the long run aggregate supply. And then the price level will give the price level at that point. Now, again, we're going to have a change in the aggregate demand. For example, a shift in the aggregate demand curve, if it shifts up and to the right, we can imagine it shifting up and to the right. And of course, it will then intersect the long term aggregate supply where it does will be at the same quantity because the long run aggregate supply is a vertical line quantity won't change but prices will then go up at that point now let's put all three curves on one graph so we're going to imagine all three curves on one graph so we've got all this downward sloping aggregate demand curve we've got an upward sloping short run aggregate supply curve and then we've got this vertical line so we can imagine three lines on the graph now if we had all those three lines and they all intersected perfectly that would mean that we would be at equilibrium if they all intersected perfectly we'd be at equilibrium, we'd be at full output, we'd be being completely efficient. If you compare that to our production possibility frontier, we would be producing on somewhere on that production possibility line. We would be completely efficient. The idea of the Keynesian model is that there are times when the short run aggregate supply is not at equilibrium with the long run. And that's, gonna, that's what gives rise graphically to the idea that we can then shore that up through things like fiscal and monetary policy. For example, if the, the short run aggregate supply and the aggregate demand meet at a point to the left of where the equilibrium would be in terms of the long run aggregate supply, that would mean that there's a recessionary gap, meaning we're not completely efficient, meaning if we were to graph that, we would see that we would be at a short run equilibrium with the output is less than what the output would be if we were completely efficient at the long run equilibrium. So that's going to be our recessionary gap. In theory, what would then happen, what would happen is this short run aggregate supply would shift down and that would shift to a point where all three lines would then be in equilibrium again and everything would be okay. In practice, of course, that's where the argument is that we should have some type of policy in order to shore up that gap because it could be done through economic policy using a demand shift rather than rather than the shift in terms of long run aggregate supply. Of course, the opposite could happen as well. If we imagine our graph again, if we imagine our three lines where we've got the downward sloping aggregate demand, we've got the upward sloping short term aggregate supply. Again, if the if the vertical uh, long run aggregate supply and the downward sloping aggregate demand, the upward sloping aggregate supply of all three lines meet at the same point, we are at equilibrium. However, if the short run meets somewhere to the right, meaning the aggregate demand downward sloping, the short run aggregate supply upward sloping are meeting at some point to the right of the long run aggregate supply curve, that indicates graphically that we have an inflationary gap. 
that means the economy is basically overheating. So if we're at some point to the right, what that means is that our output is actually greater than our potential output. Now that you might be saying, well, how could that be? How can we have output greater than the potential output? Because if we compare that to the production possibility frontier, we said that anybody anywhere on that production possibility frontier was completely efficient. How is it that we can be somehow outside the production possibility frontier? The definition of it is that we're efficient there. And, and the reason is that we could basically overuse some resources. For example, if we look at the unemployment rate, we talk about a natural unemployment rate, which is around 5%. And that means that we, we just expect 5% to be unemployed because of transitioning jobs and things like that. So that would be what we expect the market to tend toward. But if we're doing really well or if some, something happens to overheat the, the economy, then, of course, we may be over that, that rate. And therefore, we're actually overutilizing resources. And just like we overutilize our, our bodies, we can do a lot more at a short period of time. But, of course, we're going to have to pay for it later during, during the time period. And, we'd, and that's the same idea here. If we're, if we're overheating, we're overusing our resources, that means that we're going we're gonna to end up underusing our resources at some point in the future. In the long run, what's going to eventually happen is, is the short-run aggregate supply then is going to shift up to the right. And what's that going to do? It's going to put all three lines back in an equilibrium, and we're all happy again back in equilibrium. So given this model, then what can we do about that? If we say this is going to be the model, if we're going to say, hey, there's these points in, in time when the short-run, the short-run business cycles are not in alignment with our potential output, can we do something about that? And the idea is that, yeah, we can, if we can define where we're out of balance in terms of our potential, then we can use government policies, those tools being monetary policy and fiscal policy, to drive us back to the, the point of equilibrium. So the monetary policy would be the involves the Federal Reserve Bank changing the money supply and the interest rates. So when you hear you know, interest rates, money supply, that's going to be the monetary policy in order to shore up the inflationary gap and the recessionary gap. And you might be thinking that the recessionary gap is a problem and the inflationary gap, what, that's not so much a problem if we're doing better than we should be. But they, they both cause problems because what we're trying to look for is a steady growth. We don't want to overheat the economy and lead to basically a downturn, lead to basically a bubble. So what we're trying to do is, is be at that maximum output given the inputs that are, that are in there. The other tool we have is the fiscal policy. Fiscal policy is the deliberate change in either the government spending or taxes to stimulate or slow down the economy. So taxes are a way that, or government spending are a way that we can stimulate and slow down the economy. Again, same goals that we have there, adjusting that short run. For example, if we're at that point where we have the recessionary gap, what's going to be the proper policy condition under this type of model? The appropriate fiscal policy is to increase government spending and or decrease taxes. What's that going to do if we increase spending or decrease taxes? That's going to be put more money into the people's hands. And if people have more money, that means that's going to the aggregate demand shifts to the right and the output returns to the potential. So what we're doing is getting back to equilibrium. How? By shifting the demand. That's why it's going to be demand side policy. These policies, monetary and fiscal policies, will then be used in order to shift the demand, putting us back into a, a state of equilibrium. In a state where the economy is overheated and we have an inflationary cap, meaning we're producing outside the production possibility frontier, we're overusing our assets, then the appropriate fiscal policy is to decrease spending and, de and uh, increase taxes. So if we decrease spending and increase taxes, people have less purchasing power. What's that going to do to aggregate demand? Aggregate demand shifts to the left. Output returns to the potential output. So we're going back to, to the equilibrium how by adjusting the aggregate demand 
and bringing us back into equilibrium in the short run using the, the fiscal policy and monetary policy. You can see that this model gives us a really nice model to give us policy decisions. It really get, tells us exactly this is where we're at and we can give policy decisions based on a model such as this. But there are drawbacks to the model and one is the, the drawback of many models is, one, is that it's very simplified it's a very simplified model of a very complex uh, system. For example, there might be certain feedback effects once we implement types of policies, and it could feedback effects such as expectations. Expectations can change a lot over time. As we've learned more and people get more sophisticated in terms of putting in policies, in terms of fiscal policy and monetary policy, it used to be a point where people probably didn't have any idea of the fiscal policy and monetary policy, and it might be that then expectations would be different. People would react differently. As people have seen these types of policies in play more often, their, expe their expectations may change over time, and that changing in expectations could change the actual outcome of what the policies are going to do. So it's kind of interesting in terms of that's one factor that's basically an unknown. The other factor that's going to be a problem with this, of course, is that the econ economists are different than the lawmakers, and the economists in and of themselves don't always agree in terms of what the correct policy is or exactly where we are in the business cycle. And so even if the economists all agreed, they would then have to go to the lawmakers and we have to go to the lawmakers and say, lawmakers, we need to make these changes. And notice that all, a lot of these changes are happening in the short run. If, if we're trying to fine tune the economy and we're trying to say, hey, there's a, re there's a, a recessionary gap or an inflationary gap and we need to take this action ha fast in the short run in order to uh, counter that. Well, the problem with that is, of course, that our policy in terms of, of our government policy is designed not to go fast. It's, it's intentionally designed to be slow to put in new policy procedures in there. So that's one reason uh, that it, it can be difficult to actually implement some of the policies that would be in there. Now, some things can be implemented automatically. So if we have things like taxes, if, if, we have high, if people have higher income, then taxes are going up. And that would be an indication that the, that the economy is overheating. And therefore, you would think that uh, what we'd want to do is increase taxes to reduce the amount of money people have. Well, that happens automatically because the taxes increase as money increases in a progressive tax system. So there's some types of policies that we can put in place that are what we call self-correcting types of policies. Other types of policies are, a lot, are going to be a lot more difficult for us to do short-term changes. So there's also some complication in terms of measuring where we are on the business cycle and how severe a recessionary gap or an inflationary gap is. And based on that information, how much policy do we need to put in place and what will be the effect of the policy? Because when we put in the policy, if we take into effect things like the multiplier effect, it's really it could be somewhat difficult to see what types of policy will actually have in terms of an effect on the economy. So in terms of where we are actually at, in terms of measuring it in practice rather than in theory, can be a bit a lot more difficult than it would be in theory and then putting in policy putting into place and trying to see how much of a policy procedure we should put in place what the effect will be on the economy is not an easy thing to do as well partially is due to the fact that our model is going to be somewhat simplicated simplified of course and so when we think about a more complex model there's going to be some factors that may not be in the model and one of those is going to be those expectations so remember that expectations are changing over time when we when we were putting in fiscal and monetary policy uh, for the first time or for a long time is very complicated to the average person probably did not you know they're going to react to it in a different way as we use these tools a lot more and they become more transparent within the economy what's going to be changing in terms of the effect of these tools as people now have, now have information now that people have information in terms of how these tools work how they are expected to affect the economy 
how will those expectations then change the way the tools then work? So those are those are going to be some limitations in terms of the short run model. Uh, but in the short run model is going to be something that we have been using for quite some time. And we've been using it since the, basically the 1930s when we've been using the short term model. It changed a bit in the 1970s when we had a, a bit of a revival to the classical idea uh, when we had that stagflation. And then there was basically a mix of these models, the short-term model, the long-term model, two of these ideas. And then when we had this downturn in 2008, there's some more questions. Some of these old questions are coming back up in terms of how well does the short-term model work and, um, and is there any long-term effects on it? Does the short-term policy affect the long-term goal? Meaning if we're growing at 2% and we put in these short-term policies in order to uh, stimulate the business cycle in the short run, is there any adverse effect to our long-term steady growth rate? Those are all questions that have basically come back up since the, the recession in 2007 and 2008.